0: the answer
2: yes indeed it is and a good morning to you thank you at nine minutes past the hour of 10 o'clock it's a free-for-all friday the 17th morning of the fourth month of the year of our lord 2020
3: we're looking to begin this process uh on may one uh we've got a lot more work to do between now and may one because we want to get this right uh you know we will start uh with companies Uh, that can demonstrate that they can do these things. Uh, We'll start with some companies that, and this will be phased in, because we've got to measure how we're doing as we go. Um, But we'll do this with with companies where we've been able to put together the guidelines and companies that we think can start back down this road.
2: Governor Mike DeWine announcing yesterday, May one is now the new target date to start reopening the Ohio economy. And as I said to Bill Bader of the Summit Motorsports Park in Norwalk last last half hour, uh, I don't want to just say reopen the economy. That's faceless. That's nameless. It doesn't do anything. It's cold. But it's he's going to start putting American, or excuse me, Ohio workers back on their jobs. He's going to start putting Ohio businesses back in. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, back into earning potential. Uh, it is not going to be easy. It's not going to be quick. It's not as fast as many of us has hoped it would be, but it is optimistic for the first time. I've not heard anything optimistic coming from the governor or from Dr. Labcoat uh, really since this whole thing began. Everything has been very doom and gloomy. And now we actually have something to look forward to and a start toward getting back to some sense of normalcy. And that is a good thing. Now, as I talked to Bill Bader, there are a lot of stories, a lot of business owners that we don 't hear about. He talked about how they have spent three and a half million dollars in the last year or two upgrading the the motorsports park with the intention he took out loans to do that, and guess what those loans are due with the intention of course, of stocking his race park with twenty thirty thousand people at a time. Uh, generating revenue, and et cetera, et cetera, the way things go. And we hear there are a lot of people like him, him that we haven't heard about, we haven't had on the radio, whose businesses are going to go flat out under if they don't get reopened. There are stories all over our state of people who are suffering in ways that we didn't think about. All we think about is we've got to stay out of the restaurant because if somebody sneezes near you, oh, my God, you might need a ventilator, you're going to die. That's the only thing we hear. But what we don't hear is the cases of, of the business owners like Bill and of people like Peggy Reed, who is somebody that I was just made aware of this morning. And thanks to my friend Dan Ramada, I learned a little bit about her story, and I said, please have her call, because she is an example of a victim of the cure. She's not a victim of the disease of the Chinese virus. She's a victim of the cure. Because of her current health condition, she can't get treatment for that health condition because of the prescriptions for dealing with COVID-19, because of travel limitations and all kinds of other things. She is fighting for her life without any tools at her disposal. And I asked her to call in, and she has. Peggy Reed joins us now from Akron to tell us a, a different story about uh, some of the victims of this COVID-19 outbreak and the cure. Peggy, thank you for calling. How are you?
4: Hi, Bob. I'm doing okay, thanks. Glad glad for the opportunity to talk. I really well, appreciate
2: I, it. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk to you as well. I wish we could talk under better circumstances than the uh, ones we have right now. But this is why I wanted to bring you on, because I want to see if we can make, you know, make some people understand your story and perhaps get your story to the right ears. Because I know you're trying. Uh, you tried to reach Senator Portman, if I read this correctly. Um, and yeah. I don't know where that has gone with your incredible story of your cancer. Um i don't want to read your letter that you wrote to Senator Portman on the air, but it was really wonderfully descriptive i'm going to ask you to kind of do that uh, in the best way that you can to summarize your situation for our audience. Tell us what what you're going
4: through okay, so basically <clears throat> excuse me, what happened was I developed a very rare form- form of cancer that only a few doctors in the country are capable of dealing with, so I set out on a quest to find the best i I had my most recent surgery, which was a transorbital neuroendoscopic procedure where they went through my eye to remove a brain tumor, and it was determined to be cancer again. Uh, I've been going through this for a couple of years, but uh, at that point, I started researching and I found a doctor at Johns Hopkins, who's he's probably the only person that can really do me any good at this point, and they wanted to see me. So I had just got back on my feet at work mid-February when... Uh, I made those appointments for March uh, initially. Um, let me pause you for anyway, a second,
2: Peggy. Peggy, let me pause you. Um, when did you. When was your diagnosis?
4: My original diagnosis was in October of 2017. I developed a uh, nasal blockage, and it turned out I had a tumor growing from my upper sinuses, my ethmoids and frontals that blocked off my nasal passage. Okay. So that was how it started. But, uh, I had two surgeries in Ohio. I ended up in North Carolina and had, I've had two surgeries there now, but, uh, my okay, let's, let's get back to Johns. System.
2: Let's get back to Johns Hopkins now. I just wanted to make sure I wouldn't understand how recent this is or how long you've been fighting this fight. So, so this was 2017. You were diagnosed. You had the surgery, the transorbital one, where they removed the tumor through your eye, which I cannot understand or fathom. And I guess we're not supposed to. We're not surgeons. But um, so they did that, and then and and then what happened after that? What I mean, what what's the current state? If they removed the tumor, um, the first thought would be great. You should be good to go now. But that's not that simple. Tell Tell us what happened after the surgery.
4: Okay, well, I need to clarify. First of all, the first surgery I had was not the transorbital. It was uh, up through my nose. The first three surgeries I had were up through my nose. They couldn't go back up that way this time. That's why they went through my eye. But my other option, and another reason I ended up over there, if I had stayed here, they would have done what they call a keyhole craniotomy. They would have basically drilled a hole through my forehead and peeled my face off to get in there. So I either had the choice of letting them go through my eye or do that other radical procedure. And the eye issue sounded terrible, but less terrible than the other, if you know what I'm saying. So, so, so am, okay. I to assume,
2: am I to assume they had to remove your eye to do this?
4: They went right around it. They cut a hole in my eyelid, and they accessed the eye orbit hole, and they went up into my skull base up under the frontal lobe of my brain, which is where the tumor was, was about the size of your thumb, mm-hmm. and they were able to piecemeal it out and get it out of there,
2: and saved your eye.
4: Uh, they, yeah, my eye is good. I, that's but, remarkable. <laughs> I, I'm
2: sorry. i just that's a remarkable thing in and of itself, <laughs> and I don't mean to to steer away from yeah. the story of what you need now, but that's a remarkable story in and of itself. So, um, yeah, so so you, not,
4: so you, not many people know that that technology exists, and I'm you know I'm fortunate that I'm a digger and I found this guy. And I found the right person, but uh, sure that, that that just dovetails into you got to be your own best advocate, you know.
2: That is something my um, wife says all the time when it comes to your own health care. <laughs> you know, yeah, there are experts, but you have to fight for yourself. Nobody will fight for you harder than you will, even your doctors, um, because they have millions, of, well, thousands of patients or whatever the case. may be. Okay, so let's get back to the point now. So there's an expert at Johns Hopkins who can help you, and that, yes. that of course, is in Maryland. And you yes. are having a hard time being able to access him because of all of the restrictions that we're dealing with from the COVID, right?
4: Yes. Tell us the rest my of origin- Okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Not at all. <laughs> my, no. or, my original appointment with him was March 26th. Mm-hmm. Now, once they closed the schools down in Ohio, I kind of got the feeling. It's like I'm not liking how this is looking. I'm thinking they may come after me because I have to touch people all day. I'm a barber. Um, then, So I called Johns Hopkins, and said maybe we should push this out because i see something on the horizon here i don't know what but let's push this appointment out to april 16th so we did well then a week and a half or so later when they shut my barbershop down uh i knew then i made the right decision because i kind of need to be around here that they were doing similar things right at the point i would have been in baltimore was when they were initiating initiating their uh stay in place orders and all that stuff Mm -hmm. so accommodations were going to become a problem my friends angel flight which is an awesome organization they, they people like me with unusual circumstances uh, they flew me home from the two North Carolina surgeries so I wouldn't have to ride in a car or be in a commercial airport um, so they had to back out at that point because they started flying around PPE uh, so I lost my my easy ride over there well that means driving well then in the meantime all the all the service plazas and everything start getting shut down. Uh, you know, I don't know what I'm going to roll into. Am I going to roll over there and get stuck in a quarantine before he'll see me? Uh, I, have stayed quarantined myself just out of self preservation in the meantime, but as this has dragged on, I have no symptoms. I'm not a COVID carrier. I can't be at this point. It's been too long. Uh, if I was, I may have had it over the winter. I don't know. I had a, I had something. I had the bad cough. Uh, But but you couldn't make your
2: appointment in Maryland at Johns Hopkins because when you got there, you might have to sit for 14 days.
4: Yeah, and then when I get back to Ohio, am I going to have to sit here for 14 days? Because that's the current rule, too. If you leave Ohio and come back, you're supposed to self-quarantine. And anyone who would go over there with me would be in the same boat, you know. So uh, anyway, that appointment got put off again. and, And at the point, I called them to discuss this and say maybe we should put this off a little bit longer, see what's up. And they said, well, now the doctor can't see you for 60 to 90 days. Call us back in 60 days and we'll see what's happening. So, And she referenced, and this was a scheduler who referenced that it it had to do with a CDC guideline on out-of-state patients. Now another issue was okay maybe I can do telemedicine with him. Pe- Peggy, let,
2: me, let, me, let me let me jump in for a second here because we're limited on time and I want to get to the to, to the current status of your story how how urgent is the need for this next appointment like what, in terms of your recovery and defeating this cancer or having it defeat you what are we talking about here as far as urgency of this appointment
4: Okay, the urgency is, I had surgery January 16th. The clock is ticking. If you're going to enter into any kind of treatment after surgery, and I've already ruled out radiation, it'll do too much damage, but there could be chemical um, oncology options for me, immunotherapy, um, medical oncology, and that's this man's specialty that I'm going to see. And he's also one of the few people in the country capable of doing the type of surgery I just had, along with my doctor at UNC. Mm-hmm. so okay the urgency goes back to the fact that uh, how much time can i wait i mean i don't even right. know if i have any options but i don't know how much time i have so have, have, they, so have
2: they given you any kind of a prognosis as far as how much I, time you have without the, 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 the treatment
4: put it this way i won't let them put an expiration date on me because i know that's a psychological time bomb if they tell you you got six months to live there's that little voice in the back of your head that's going to say, "Hey, yeah, you know, you only got six months, and maybe it'll motivate some people." But to me, I would right. consider it a negative thing. So well, I have I understand. never allowed
2: that. I understand, and I and that's a very that's a very uh, I I respect that point of view. Um. So, what did Senator Senator Portman's office say? Have they responded to your to your letter?
4: No, they have not responded to me yet. But I spoke with uh, State Rep. Bill Romer yesterday, and he. He was going to forward my information to Portman on my behalf, and there was some kind of mix-up. Portman didn't apparently get the letter I sent until yesterday morning, so he deserves okay. a little leeway there because he hasn't really been brought into the loop. And no, I, unless they emailed me while I was on the phone with you here, I have okay. not heard from them yet. So, but. I'm very optimistic. Um, I pulled an attorney in with me to work on this, and hopefully he can help me cut through this red tape across the well, state line. Well, that's, that's and, what
2: you did. Right. That's why you need somebody at the federal level, not at the state level, because you were talking about uh, you know, interstate situations where you need to go to Maryland and you need to get, to get back here, and you have to do that in the face yeah. of all of these travel restrictions because of COVID. So uh, that's, uh, that's a serious problem. Uh, Peggy, listen, I'm, I'm so glad you called to share your story, um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that people listening can put in a word for you um, and contact uh, Senator Portman's office as well. And maybe if we put a little pressure on, that's not to not to speak ill of the senator, by the way, that he needs pressure. But if the message isn't reaching him, let's make sure that it does. And in fact, Peggy, I want to put you on hold right now. Uh, and I want you to give, um, give Marcy your phone number. And perhaps we can reach out to the senator's office for you as well so that we can try. You know, we're talking about somebody who literally is fighting for her life and it is being impacted by the cure of the COVID-19 prescriptions. You know, the uh, the restrictions, rather, that have been put in place by different states and federal officials. Uh, Peggy, thanks so much for your phone call. I know we're late. Let's get out and come back on AM 1420 The Answer.
0: Bob France, Authority.
2: All right, 1028. Um, too short to take calls here. I will take calls the entire final half hour of the program. But uh, I just wanted to, again, point out the, the nature of the issue there that, you know, that people don't talk about. Um we talk about people who have lost their jobs. We talk about people people who have lost their businesses because of the cure because of the prescription that was uh, that was uh, offered by uh, Dr. Acton and by Dr. Burks and Dr. fauci and so on and so forth but there are, there are things you don 't hear about, and this is one of them. The travel restrictions you may they kind of make it sound like hey, if you want to travel outside of state, we're going to make you sit 14 days, as if you're going on a vacation all the time, as if anybody who wants to go from here to there is doing it for leisure or something of that nature. How about somebody who's trying to save her life? She doesn't know how much time she has left. She had brain surgery. She had that tumor removed. She now has to receive a certain type of treatment that only one or two people in the, in the country or the world are capable of providing. And she can't get there. It's not, about, you know, it's not about finding him. It's about reaching him. She finally found somebody who can do this for her, but she can't get there because of the restrictions with travel. And because of the, not just the travel, but the whole part about not being able to see new patients from out of state. The Johns Hopkins doctor that she's talking about cannot do telemedicine with her because he's not licensed to practice medicine in Ohio. And even if there was a waiver, she's not one of his patients. And she can't be one of his patients until she sees him in person. And she can't see him in person because she can't schedule a, tri- a trip where she has to not quarantine for 14 days on each end. How she was supposed to make the appointment? That's a, it's just an example, a terrible example, obviously, of bureaucracy at its finest. It's just all kinds of red tape that has to be cut through in order for somebody to try to save her life. And this is one of the examples, and I I really mean what I said. Her name is Peggy Reed. Send an email. Make a phone call to Senator Portman's office. Again, this is not to impugn Senator Portman, but just to say, if you didn't hear the message, get this message and, and, and get in touch with this woman. Help her get to Maryland to see the specialist that can save her life. That's the best thing we can do right now. 2169010945. Dial now. We'll get you on after the news. AM 1420 the answer. 1036. We continue on AM 1420 the answer. Crazy day today. Reacting to the president's announcement uh, of the phased in return to opening the American economy. Reacting to Mike DeWine's announcement of the phased in reopening of the Ohio economy. And again, in an attempt to make sure that we don't just, you know, turn that into a cold, faceless entity, the economy. We're talking about American workers. We're talking about your neighbors. We're talking about your family. What can we make of the plan? Um. Steve Berman at The Resurgent wrote what I found to be, as I read this uh, last night, uh, one of the most um, um, fair-minded, I guess is what I would call it, analyses of the plan so far. On paper, the plan seems rational, reasonable, and well-organized. In practice, it will probably not be any of those things. There will be a collection of fits and starts. One step forward and two steps back. New hotspots will be found. Factories will open and then close again. Small towns seemingly free from the virus will suddenly get slammed. And waves of fear spreading after collective jubilant celebrations. So why am I calling this fair-minded? Because I think that's all we can do is look at it on paper and then try to project it into practice. And on paper, what the president announced yesterday sounded, again, not fast enough for many of our tastes, including mine, but reasonable given the limitations that he is operating under from the medical community. Same thing with Mike DeWine. What he announced yesterday is not nearly fast enough, but understandable given the limitations from the medical community. President Trump's plan uh has a lot of depends in it and i don't mean the adult undergarments i'm talking about there's a whole lot of if that happens then this will happen it just depends for example sioux falls south dakota one of the wide open places the president seemed to envision from his podium contains the hottest and biggest hot spot in america for the uh wuhan coronavirus the smithfield port processing Plant has suffered seven hundred thirty three cases to date according to the new york times its hourly wage employees are typically low earning immigrants making anywhere from twelve seventy five to nearly twenty dollars an hour now this kind of business which is deemed essential whether it's meat packing or distribution or toilet paper production exists all over the country and despite the countermeasures companies deploy to fight the virus and keep it out when it does get in it can quickly devastate a workplace and the surrounding community Fully 44% of all the cases in South Dakota center around this one plant. Certainly, the management at Smithfield bears responsibility for making some poor choices. When one employee tested positive on March 24th, and working with CDC, Smithfield is trying to figure out how to reopen the plant. There will be repercussions. The union is going to make noises. The company didn't act fast, fast enough or deploy countermeasures, but instead focused on increasing production to meet surging demand. Now, take this case in microcosm. Multiply it all over the country, as businesses which have been shuttered need to figure out how to safely open. And some will open, despite clear indications they shouldn't. For example, those with employees who have relatives at home who have the virus. Or, for example, another, allowing an employee who says they feel run down and sick, but don't have a 100-point fever, so therefore, technically, they're allowed to work, but they shouldn't. President Trump's plan is cautious and represents the best approach to federal guidelines to open up the economy, but there are going to be situations like those that force us to take steps back, where plants or, or employers are a little bit less than diligent, and they are going to make us again take that one step forward and two step back, two steps back. In phases, state and local officials must be able to accurately measure case counts, which means adequate testing, and demonstrate a downward trajectory of cases in a 14-day period. Employers must provide PPE, which means the masks and gloves, temperature checks, testing and isolated referrals, and other countermeasures. Most businesses currently open the essential business, I'm sorry, most businesses currently open, including the essential businesses, uh, have these countermeasures, but the ones that closed will have to quickly get up to speed. Phase 1 allows parks and other public areas to open with crowds of under 10 people or allow proper social distancing. It suggests telework, closed common areas like break rooms, minimize non-essential travel, but it's not outlawed. They're just saying minimize it. Restaurants can reopen with proper social distancing, taking out half the tables, for example, and definitely no seating at the bar. Bars themselves will have to remain closed, while gyms can reopen with limits on the number of people allowed in and a lot of sanitary wipes to wipe down equipment. Phase two, if one is successful and in place for several weeks, and the downward trend continues, allows more opening. But if phase one results in a hotspot of resurgence of the virus, that brings everybody back to lockdown. Phase two is when bars can reopen, though with diminished standing room capacity, movie theaters can reopen, if anyone will go is another, another matter, but with similar restrictions. Schools and youth sports can reopen. That's a good thing. That is a huge thing about the schools. If Phase 2 is successful and the downward trend continues, Phase 3 begins to look like normal life. Everybody can go back to work with social distancing still recommended. The chance of anyone reaching Phase 3 by the end of the summer, however, appears to be remote. Significant questions arise. First, if an area achieves Phase 3 early enough, say mid-June, that's the fastest it could happen, then what will prevent a flood of people from coming in from adjacent or nearby areas that are still locked down to enjoy the freedoms of this particular new Phase 3 area? Seriously, if a mall or a park or a summer camp is wide open and enjoying a virus-free existence, will the local police seal it off to keep others who are coming in from virus-afflicted? Uh, uh, existences, in order to keep those people out, can they do that? Secondly, all it takes is one bad decision by a manager or a business to start another hotspot. One infection can lead to 2.3 to 3 more every day, and then uh, just when things are starting to open up, hotspots could spread, forcing another shutdown. The first place to go to phase three will be watched like a baby eagle's nest on a webcam. Everybody will be looking at normalcy and they will come flocking to it. And that could cause another problem. So again, on paper, the president's plan does seem rational and reasonable and well organized and, you know, testing from phase one to phase two and phase two to phase three to make sure that we don't, but it, but it may be just impossible because of what? Humanity. Human nature. Human nature is going to be after being locked down and then seeing other people who are free and living without restrictions, they're going to flee, well, not flee, but flock to those places and then perhaps bring infection with them, causing us to go back again. Human nature. People are going to suddenly see, you know, waves of fear being replaced by waves of jubilation and exuberance, and they're going to say, I want to be a part of that. Tired of the fear, tired of this, I want to go to a place where it's clean. I'm healthy, they're healthy, I can go there. But the thing is, of course, as we know with this virus, we don't know when somebody is healthy and when they're actually a carrier. Even China, which opened its movie theaters in late March, promptly closed them again because it was too soon, even if you have a perfect plan on paper. Again, quoting the resurgent, I'm glad the federal government came out with a plan because we need one. Me too. We need guidelines, and on paper it does make perfect sense. But as we know, it only takes a few mistakes by a few individuals to bring down the best plans. It looks like we won't be hugging, shaking hands, or going to movies of the mall for quite a while. But at least we'll have something to shoot for, and that is a positive thing. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about what the president said? How do you feel about what the government said? B.J. in North Olmsted, governor, not government, excuse me, governor said. B.J. in North Olmstead, you're on the air. Go ahead.
5: Thank you. I'm fine with what the president said. What I'm not fine with is a certain person uh, who held a high office in the state of Ohio a few years back put a lot of storefront owners out of, uh, hurt them because they lost their rentals. And a lot of people that work for the companies that used to rent those offices lost their jobs. And the industry that uh, uh, this person put out of business was the Internet casinos where thousands of uh, people enjoyed going for a few bucks. They could have a good time. That person was Mike DeWine. I don't trust this man at all. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to watch what he's going to do, like the power-hungry governor up in uh, Michigan. These are people that enjoy the power of their politics rather than the well-being of the American public. That's why I don't trust them. I do trust Donald Trump. But Mike DeWine has played nasty games. He made big profits when he closed down those businesses. And there was no reason for it except that he knew the state of Ohio and the lottery needed the money. So we have to be very careful, and that's why I'm very strongly for term limits. And I hope some of the people that own those businesses to give you a call next week or some of the people that enjoyed playing them and some of the workers that enjoyed He also heard vendors because they had their machines in there selling different drinks and what have you. Mike DeWine cares about Mike DeWine, not about Ohio. Thank you for your time, Bob.
2: BJ, I appreciate the phone call. A lot of specifics there that you're talking about and a lot of historical things. I don't know that anything, and this is just my opinion, not at all to denigrate yours or anybody else's, but I don't know that anything anybody else did in previous government service can be applied to this because this is, as everyone says, including our president, unprecedented we've never faced anything quite like this we've never t- taken on something like this and i think all uh previous missteps i think should be you know kind of uh, uh i don't know uh, put off to the side let's just see what they're doing now because they've never had to do this before so i'm just trying to be fair to everybody on that front tj cleveland go ahead tj
6: yeah you know bob i was so happy to see trump honor these truck drivers you know a couple of weeks ago i was telling people the real unsung heroes of this our uh, truck drivers diners are closed truck stops are closed they're not getting any hot uh, meals they're not getting any hot showers and and excuse the pun they just keep on trucking but uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that you know they got some recognition because you know without them doing their job as bad as this mess is we'd be in a lot bigger mess well,
2: and we i was talked little... about that tj we talked maybe with you even um when they announced the closure of the rest stops, uh, it was like, wait a second, how in the world are we supposed to get these goods from these factories to these stores, particularly you know the quote unquote essential stores, you know, for the toilet paper and the soap and the antibacterials as well as the food. You know, if these guys can't, you know, and they're limited, of course, and how many hours they can drive straight before they have to rest and sleep and so on, and the rest stops are closed. So I remember talking about it, and I know a lot of people have been giving the truckers a lot of praise and a lot of kudos because they are, you know, kind of the engine that keeps us going. But you're right. To hear it from the president's mouth, you know, carries an awful lot of weight, and I was really glad to see that, too. Did you have something else?
6: Yeah, and you don't hear them complaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a little curious last night. I was watching, and now they're saying uh – uh Alcohol consumption greatly increases your risk of contacting coronavirus Now that's kind of major news there. I mean that's people are drinking even more now at home you know normally i, people I don't know would,
2: the I don't know the science behind that t j you know when I hear that, I hear that as one of the reasons quite frankly that they want to keep the bars closed longer than other businesses when they reopen. Because what's a bar? I mean, everybody is on top of one another at a bar. Uh, you know, you're even if you're just standing right behind somebody who's at the bar waiting to get the bartender's attention, you're going to be closer to people. But then also, the more you drink, the drunker you get, the more you start, you know, pushing up on people or hitting on the ladies or whatever the case might be. So I, I kind of took that as more behavioral. They're saying the more... Alcohol consumption leads to more COVID transmission because you lose um, awareness. You know when you're when you're buzzed or you're drunk and you're not thinking clearly. You don't maybe practice the right habits, and then you also get a little bit more free with your actions. I saw it more as behavioral, not necessarily when you drink, your body becomes more uh, susceptible to a to a virus.
6: I I don't know, Bob. You know that's like I could be wrong. That's just how I heard it. That's how yeah they were showing in today's paper at University Hospital has kind of like maybe discovered that there's some chemical that's in mouthwash that tends to uh, prevent the virus from taking hold, that they're working on it, you know, That per, per perhaps a, an oral spray. So who knows what, how this thing is affected. You know, one other thing real quick. Real, Bob, real quick, because i got to get to yeah, other people. Yeah, if you ever get a doctor on here, because this one's always bothered me, you know, we come up with a forever vaccine on polio, never come back again. Yeah. What's so different about these viruses that you can take like chickenpox, uh, mumps, measles, uh polio and people are inoculated for life but then like these other viruses like every well, year Well, I I, have, th- I, the, I think I, it, I
2: think it's I think it's it's, it's about length, uh, TJ, and thanks for the call. I think it's about how much time passed? In other words, mumps were a problem for generations. Measles, chickenpox were problems for generations. It took a, a long time for the antibodies to be built up to the point where a simple vaccination, along with what you what, you know you have naturally, hereditarily, to stop you from getting uh, chickenpox. That's why you don't see them anymore, uh, and that's why they used to have those chickenpox parties. You know, you just get it out of the way so you have the antibodies. Now you'll never never get it again. They would have a bunch of kids get it at the same time. Um, so I, I think it's about how long it takes. It literally takes generations for those kinds of things to say it's never a problem again. Now, I don't know because I'm not a doctor the difference between a disease and a virus, but I suspect there is one, and a significant one, or multiple significant differences. This is a virus, not a disease, and I think that might be just a little bit of the, the explanation. But not being a doc, uh, yeah, that's something we can talk about the next time we get one on. We do talk to doctors fairly regularly on this program. Uh, it's 1051, final segment coming up, AM 1420, The Answer. So, just a little quick check during the break there. Moderate alcohol use will not weaken the immune system. Heavy alcohol use can. That's the bottom line. According to the Mayo Clinic... Drinking too much alcohol weakens the immune system and makes you more prone to getting sick. Heavy drinking, which is counters eight or more drinks a week for women, 15 or more drinks a week for men. Or binge drinking, four or five drinks in a two to three hour period for women, five or more drinks in that same period of time for men. Uh, they can weaken the immune system by altering the makeup of your gut microbiome home to trillions of microorganisms performing several crucial roles for your health and affecting their ability to support your immune system. So if you are binge drinking or heavily drinking, yes, uh, that can indeed impact it scientifically, not just behaviorally like I was talking about. Moderate drinking, according to the Mayo Clinic, would not weaken the immune system. So just be careful you don't go from moderate to heavy, and you should be all right. Let's go to uh, Litchfield. Dave, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Hi, Dave, go ahead. Hey
3: Bob, I love your show, and now I'm depressed because uh, <laughs> I may be in one of those categories of drinkers. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I listened to the president's news conference yesterday, and I was encouraged. I listened to the wines, and I was uh, depressed. So here's my question: because you played the clip again today, the wine said, "We're going to have to measure this as we go and see what and see what the results are." My question is: as businesses open and start to, like, normalize, is somebody going to come around and say, no, you have to shut down, and what if they don't shut down? How is this going to work if they
2: don't shut down? Uh, That's a great question. I don't know that there's a ton of difference between DeWine's and Trump's message on that, though, goes. I, I really don't. I think that if something is reopened, but they're not careful and they don't, you know, provide the protective uh, equipment and so on, and they don't check temperatures and all those other things. And an outbreak happens in that particular place, like the Smithfield processing plant I just described uh, in in that story in South Dakota or is it North Dakota, whatever. But if if somebody doesn't do it right, and there is an outbreak in that plant, and then that starts to spread from them to their family members and so on, here we go again, I can see them trying to contain it locally very quickly and closing down that plant and making sure those people quarantine. So that would be a return to the quote-unquote quarantine or lockdown, and I think that actually would be reasonable.
3: But, you know, what I'm asking is, in the subtle way, restaurants open up. They have a bar. Bars are supposed to stay closed. Sooner or later, that migrates into, well, you know, some people at the bar and so on and so forth. That stuff just starts to happen. It migrates. Who's going to enforce that other than the business owner who says, I need the money?
2: Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, and you know what my, my suspicion is? There's going to be some people hired. There's, they're probably going to hire some people, not cops, and they can't just expect cops to go in and enforce these things, but they're going to probably hire people to go in and evaluate, you know, state workers monitoring uh, places to make sure that the social distancing is maintained, that this place doesn't have a bar open where two or three people are standing chest to back waiting for their drinks and waiting to get the bartender's attention and all those kinds of things. There's probably ways to do it where they can kind of just sit suggest and urge and push them to follow the right directions so that they don't end up having a you know a situation where they have to, to close up again so that's pro- that would probably Scary. be what I would imagine it is Scary. it is but but again he, here we are like we said thanks for the call my friend here we are once again saying the same thing it's unprecedented nobody's ever had to do this before so what is the what are the odds and what is the likelihood that doing it for the first time will be the right way I think pretty low, to be honest with you. I think pretty low. They have to allow room for error. They have to allow room for setbacks. And I think there's going there, that's going to happen. But as I said before, I kind of take a different approach than what our last caller said. I was encouraged by Mike DeWine yesterday, not not depressed. I was encouraged by President Trump because what we didn't hear from them is we are extending the lockdown past the current April 30th deadline. We heard, nope, we're going to try to start reopening things on May 1st. That's the best news we've gotten in weeks. And that's where we're going to go into the weekend. Thanks very much. Have yourself a safe weekend. We'll see you Monday.